Unfinished series, a, uh, a series as we are exploring in the book of Acts. And as we jump into this series, uh, I'm reminded of the words of Henry Ford, the great inventor and founder of the assembly line and creator of the Model T. He once said this, anyone who stops learning is old, whether at 20 or 80, anyone who keeps learning stays young. It's true. I've seen this firsthand. Those who stop learning, stop trying to understand, uh, become old very, very quickly. But those who keep their mind fresh uh, are able to stay young, and their mind stays sharp. And I think for many of us, when we look at the Word of God, there are things that we glance over. But today in this passage is one that I think many of us have read past several times, not knowing how to apply to our lives. But today I want us to stop and give us an invitation to learn from a, from a neglected doctrine, the ascension, as well as the selection of this replacement apostle to Judas. And that we can see and have some life lessons for us that we can apply in our day to know how that we can walk more closely with Jesus Christ to ensure our joy. But before we go any further today, I want to take a moment to pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you knowing that you are God. And we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to be here among us, to open your word to our hearts. We know that your word is living and active. May your word be unleashed to our souls. And Lord, we also know that there are angels present right now in this place that are seeking to make sure that we live or to see and know how we can be beneficiaries of salvation and to, to see how we are living as those under the authority of your word and your sovereignty and lordship. Lord, may all that we do today be pleasing in your sight. May you be present among us and may you speak to our hearts as we explore the truth of your word that you have given in this passage for our benefit so that we might examine ourselves and see you working in our lives, and make the changes necessary to show and bring your name great glory. Be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So we need to jump into this text and get a real grasp. Undoubtedly, if you are familiar with the Bible and you've read this, if you're not, this is probably new to you. But allow me to elaborate and show you what's going on as we jump within this book. And this chapter is specifically to see what God has for us. As we learned last week, this book was written by Luke, the the same person who wrote the book of Luke. And the book of Luke is volume one of what happened, what Jesus said and did. And then he transitions into book two or episode two to show us what happened directly after Jesus ascended into heaven and what happened uh, on earth. And it's sometimes called, as we learned last week, the Acts of the Apostles. But a better term would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That God sent his spirit into his church, which we're actually going to learn more about next week, to equip his people to accomplish his mission on the earth. And so this is a a transition. This is where uh, uh, Luke is leaving off and kind of putting a bow on the story and how Jesus' time on earth ended and how the Holy Spirit will come and we'll see that next week. And he's given us several invitations or things that we can learn from. Now remember, these guys had been scared. The disciples or the apostles, there are 11 of them are remaining. And they're terrified because their founder had been killed. And then he had risen again, much to their, their surprise. Many of them didn't understand the depth of the resurrection and what it entailed. 
And yet here they are coming, they have engaged with the risen Jesus and they ask him a question, which is where our passage starts off today. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus had talked about this. Luke actually records this happening in Luke chapter 22, verse 29 through 31. He says, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so they're wondering, is this the time? And then Jesus gives him his final directions. Now, what can we learn? That's the first point that you need to put down within your notes. What can we learn from Jesus' final directions to his apostles? So we look back at his final directions. What does he respond to them? How does he respond to them and their question? He says in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He actually begins with a rebuke or a misunderstanding of what uh, they were perceiving and what they understood. See, the reality is, is when God shows us things, we have a tendency to misunderstand what he has for us. We do. We misunderstand all the time. We think that God's leading us this way, and it turns out it's this way. We think God is giving us this direction, and and he's going to show us, and this is where he's going to lead us, and it ends up taking us in a totally different direction than what we intended. And that's how the disciples understood it. They said, is it this time that you're going to do this? And God responds and says, I have a bigger plan than you have any idea about. I'm going to take the suffering in your life. I'm going to take all the different things that you're going through, and I'm going to take you in a different direction than you intended it. And we have this all the time. I mean, we, we have all these plans when we're young. And then we quickly realize life kicks in. As it's been said, you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. It's very, very true. I know many of us, as we've grown up, especially those who are older, there's a lot of things that you never, ever planned in your life. You never intended to have happen. You never wanted to go through. But yet, as you look back over your life, you see that God was leading, God was directing, and God was shaping and molding. I think of the experiences in my own life. When I was a young, uh, young man, after I had become a believer in Jesus, I thought God was calling me to be a pastor of a rural church. So I was training for rural ministry, small town ministry. And the next thing I know, I get a, tr- a job in the city of Chicago, and I'm looking around going, what happened? What happened? And then God started working, uh, working within me and exposing me to different cultures and giving a heart for the nations. And, and now I'm traveling in different parts and engaging with people from all over the world, and it's wonderful. But that wasn't in my plan. God's vision was bigger than mine. Your plan might be this, and God's saying, I have this for you. We have this tendency to misunderstand what God has for us. Sometimes in regards to a mate, sometimes in a job, a job or career, we misunderstand what he has for us. And we have to be able to, to under, say, to, say to the Lord, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing right now, but I'm going to trust you in the middle of that. And we, because w- the reality is, and many of us, why we struggle so much and why we misunderstand is because we really want to know the future. We want to know mysteries that only God knows. And especially within the Word, they want to understand this too. Hey, is this going to happen now? You know, I was talking with someone this past week. And, and remembering when I was a, uh, a younger pastor, I remember hearing uh, a story of a church that had a missions conference and hardly anyone came. And then they had a prophecy conference and everybody and their brothers showed up. Because everybody wants to know about the future. No one, not, not, a lot of, uh, not as many people care about uh, what, how God's going to reach the world, but they want to know the details of what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. 
I even heard a sermon this past week. I had a fellow pastor call me, and he goes, what are you doing right now? I said, I'm just hanging out. And he goes, uh, I need you to go online and listen to this sermon. I said, why? He goes, because it's the worst sermon I've ever heard in my entire life. And I thought, well, why do I want to hear the worst sermon I've ever heard in my entire life? He goes, oh, it's funny and sad. <laughs> so I went and I listened to the sermon, and it was a man who was predicting what's going to happen at the end of time, basically. And some of the stuff he was coming up with was absolutely nuts. I mean, seriously, he was looking at signs in the heavens, and he was trying to equate them to the here and now, going so far as to take the President Trump, okay, and Trump and Pence, and he goes, put their names together and say it really fast. Trump Pence, Trump Pence, Trump Pence. It's the trumpet of God. And I went, oh, my land. I need to get away from you before you get singed. <laughs> I mean, I get singed because of God's judgment coming on you. This is someone that is making the scripture trying to fit within the contemporary situation in which we find ourselves and wants to make the news bend to what's going on. And that's what people want to do. We think of the Herald Camping thing. Jesus is coming back on this day. If you ever hear someone say that Jesus is coming back on this day, get far, far away. Because Jesus said very clearly, no man knows the day or the hour. And we can become obsessed with all these details at the end of time. And I have seen so many people that are so concerned with the details of prophecy and want to make it all fit, and all they want to do is talk about it, they neglect the things that God tells them to do about loving their wife, loving their children, doing your job well. There's just something wrong, and you seem holy and devoted, but your life is totally out of balance and out of whack. And that's a tendency for each one of us. We want to be consumed with what's going to happen at the end of time. When is Jesus going to come back? I think it's now. The Bible doesn't say when. It just says, be ready. That's what it says. You can hypothesize about what's going on in Israel, in Russia, with North Korea. And let me tell you something. Every generation has done it. I mean, I even heard this same guy start equating how many... Uh, they looked at Trump's birthday and the time that he became office, and they said there's, he, he has seven, there were 70 years between this and that, and there's seven weeks between this and that, seven, seven, seven. This is, it's the perfect number of God. I'm like, you are a nut job. You seriously are. And you're saying, I, I believe that Jesus is coming back, but what you're doing is you are destroying what God intended within his word. You are trying to make it fit. God doesn't fit like that. He's not a tame. He has his own timetable in ways that we don't expect. And we trust what he has revealed. But we also have to understand and, and silence ourselves when we, when we try to want to know mysteries only he knows. As the book of Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 29 says and puts it this way. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. That we may do what? All the works of the law. The idea is, is not that you hypothesize about times and dates and things like that, but you might do what you understand it says. That I might perform it. That I might love my neighbor. That I might take care. Now, see, people don't want to do that because that's hard. But see, that's where discipleship has to find itself. Not in theorizing and knowing all these detailed end time charts. But loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
That's what we are to do. That's what we're to reach out and be compassionate and help the poor and help the most vulnerable among us and give mercy and give grace and extend his name to the farthest reaches of God's kingdom. Now, I'm not saying prophecy is not important, but if you're becoming so obsessed and trying to make Fox News or the Huffington Post fit into the end times, you've got issue. Let me tell you that right now. I remember as a kid, and you think it's a new generational thing? When I was a kid, I remember sitting in the 80s, and in the 80s we had all these end times charts. And I remember someone saying that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. You know why? Because Ronald has six letters, Wilson, which was his middle name, had six letters, and Reagan had six letters, and it was 666. You can make whatever you want fit and, and say, uh, make it all these symbolisms collect, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean what God intended it to mean. See, it wasn't. And this is where we have to be very careful and understand the secret things belong to God. He has a timetable that I don't understand. My job is to be faithful at the task that God has given me in the here and now. That's the question. And so they wanted to understand. The, 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 the disciples said, hey, is it time? It's go time. That's resurrection. You're back. We're ready to go. We're ready to serve because you said that we're going to be judge of the 12 tribes. Is it now? Is it time? Is it time? It's like, you know, it's like a little kid. And you say, I'm going to get the popsicle for you later in five minutes. Is it five minutes? Is it five minutes? It's been 30 seconds. (laughs) It's the same thing. Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? And he's saying, no, that there's a mystery here that you do not understand. As we read in Mark chapter 13, verse 32 through 33. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. You're to be on wake, be awake, be on guard. It's a metaphor for being alert spiritually. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. We shouldn't spend time trying to guess the day or the hour, but be prepared to be about the task he has given us. And what is that task? Let's look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And we're really going to get on to that next week. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. He's moving geographically. Jerusalem is ground zero for the resurrection. And that is where everything happened. But outside of Jerusalem, it's in Judea. And then from Judea, it would go to, the, to Samaria, which is really incomprehensible to their mind. Because he's saying that I want you to reach, reach these um, basically half, they saw it as half-breeds, and they saw them as heretics. So these half-breed heretics, I want you to reach them with the glory of the gospel of my name. And that was very incomprehensible to many of them because he's saying, I want you to cross racial, religious, and cultural barriers to reach them. Not just geographically, culturally, language, what their worldview is, to reach out with people that look different than yourself and show them who Jesus is by, in, by word and deed. He has given us, he gave them and us a mission to the world. A mission to the world. That's letter C within your notes. He's given us a mission to reach the world with the glory of his name. No matter what color they are, no matter what background they are, no matter what experience or education, no matter what their religion is, we're to share Jesus with everyone. And we're to share with every tribe, every tongue, every people group. That's why we do missions, so that the glory of God might be seen in every culture. And we have a mission to the world, and he's called us all to participate in that. 
to share who Jesus is. But you know, I think a lot of Christians don't understand this. We, we agree with it intellectually. We nod when we talk about mission and reaching the world. But then we, we move and retreat into these, what I call, evangelical holy huddles, and we remove ourselves from the rest of the world. And then we lament at the culture, how bad the culture is. Look how bad the world is. Look how bad the world is. I heard a story by Dr. Jim Shadix. He was preaching at Brainerd Baptist Church uh, several weeks ago, and he was telling the story how he had been visiting the Hoover Dam in Nevada. And it's an architectural marvel. I mean, it was built between 1931 and 1936. It had been, um, they had scouted it for a long time, a way to dam up the Colorado River and find hydroelectric power, recreation, uh, flood control, all of these different things. And it really, in that era, was a uh, complete architectural marvel. It cost $49 million in 1931, which is $700 million today. I mean, you're talking about concrete, layers of concrete, and people, they get like millions of tourists every year to see this. And so Dr. Shadix was there with his wife seeing this, and they, uh, one thing that struck him was just not how beautiful it was, how grand it was. I mean, it's, it's, it's just gigantic. And he said there was a woman there that was trying to take a picture of the dam. And he goes, she was leaning over a concrete barrier, and she was so frustrated, she said, these power lines are getting in the way of my photo. And it struck him. He just kept that thought in his mind, and he thought about it. As this woman kept saying, those power lines are messing up my pictures. And he said to himself, aren't those power lines the reason this dam is here? Wasn't it there to bring hydroelectric power? And he went on to say this, tourists are not the only ones that can get distracted by seemingly trivialities that they think are in the way, when in fact are the very reason that something is in existence. Stay with me. The church does that sometimes. We do that, I think, when it comes to this culture that we live in. You will agree with me, I believe, that we are living in a Christless, gospel-less culture as far as the morals are concerned and ethics are concerned. It just seems like everything has been thrown out the window. And I don't know how you feel, but sometimes I feel that this is just too much. This is so out of control. This is so distracting from us being able to do what we are supposed to do. Then all of a sudden I stop and think, isn't a Christless culture, a gospel-less people, isn't that the very reason Jesus left us on this planet? It's easy as the church of Jesus Christ, as believers in Christ, as housewives and businessmen and students, to get so overwhelmed by the lostness of our culture, but the out-of-control nature of morals at every turn whether it's the transgendered movement or it's white, the white supremacy that people are talking about, whether it's terrorism, you just kind of feel a... You can pick into our culture and just see what seems to be absolutely overwhelming issues. Did you ever feel yourself as a Christian thinking, gosh, we can't do anything as a church. I can't do anything as a Christian. I just seem to make any progress because of all this stuff that seems so overwhelming. And I think when we find ourselves at that place, we find ourselves like the woman leaning over the concrete barrier at the Hoover Dam saying, those power lines are getting in the way of my pictures. We need to think sometimes that the absolute depravity of the culture that we live in is getting in the way of our living, as, uh, living Christian lives and being the church of Jesus Christ. We return time and time again to the Word of God to hear and remind us that the lostness and that depravity, that out-of-control nature, that Christlessness, that gospellessness is the very reason we are in existence. It's not to be in a holy huddle and to retreat from it. 
the reason that God has put us here and left us here now is to witness and testify to the very culture in which such evil exists. Something that we have forgotten. We exist to testify to the truth of who Jesus is by words and actions and embodying within ourselves the truth of who he is in our marriages, in our work, our money, our entertainments, our recreation, and the like, not to withdraw from the world. The reason we are here is to glorify God by living as citizens of the kingdom, acting as preserving an invading agent to this sin-locked world. And after Jesus gives his last instructions, we read about his ascension. One of the most neglected stories in all of Scripture. We read in verse 9 through 11 that he ascended into heaven. And, and we look. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's a few things I want us to learn from that. First of all, what, I mean, what do we learn from Jesus' departure? That's the next point. Jesus' departure. What do we learn from this ascension? What can we learn from it? First of all, we learn that he is coming again. He is coming again. Now, we're not to predict when. We're to be faithful and remember and proclaim that he is coming again, that he will come. Matter of fact, the scripture lays it out, and some people say we're in the last days. We are. We're in the last days, the moment that Jesus stepped on earth. That was the inauguration of the last days, that it would begin when the Spirit of God came upon his church. Our timing is not God's timing. That was the inauguration of the last days. That's the time that we're in now. People say, well, it's still future. We're already in it. Because remember, time, we, we think of time just like this, and time is much bigger than that. We have to understand that. He is coming again. He will come back in the same way he left, on the clouds. He left as the suffering servant he will come back, though, as the conquering king. He will return, and this world as we know it will come to an end. Wickedness will be judged. Those who insisted on their own way will go to hell. And those who truly embrace Christ will be with him forever and ever. Now, Jesus is coming. The question is, is how does that make you feel? Hopefully, it gives you hope and comfort. For others, it might make you have dread. If it makes you feel dread, then you need to change. And understand that while you're on this earth, while you're standing upright, while you have breath in your lungs, you have the opportunity to repent and turn to him. But don't put it off. Don't presume upon God's goodness. Now this should give us comfort. It should give us comfort to know that he is returning. I think the reason that so many Christians get so up in arms over the evils in society is because they want to win on this side and they don't want to suffer. Now, I'm not saying you run out and want to suffer, but I also think that they have a really misplaced theology that their hope is not greater than their fear. Because we get worked up, and we're like, oh, this is happening. Let's see this. I see this this over there. Ah." And you can get angry, but don't be so angry. I mean, I I don't get angry as much as I I feel pity and compassion because those those people are doing that. Yes, it makes me angry, but it also makes me sorrow because they're headed to hell. They're, they're headed to hell. And I, I, don't, I don't get worked up and want to just legislate this or that. I, I want to pray for them because they need, to, they, they need Jesus. They need him. It's not politics they need. They need a savior. And we have to have our compassion. Give us an understanding. And I mean, our, our hope in Jesus has to go beyond this time. It should give us comfort because they have no idea 
what is coming upon them. For many of us, though, our, our hope is not that great. It only extends as far as we can see. We have to know that it will bring us comfort and that helps us in our walk with Jesus because we know that every kind word, every time we bore witness for Christ, sacrificed ourselves in whatever sphere of life in which we find ourselves will be revealed and all will be known and it will be rewarded. And knowing that Christ is coming, we should be about the task of meeting and encouraging one another. Therefore, we should commit to community. See, notice what's going on within this passage. After Jesus ascends into heaven, in verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, which is about a half to three-quarters of a mile. Um, in this, on the Sabbath day, Jews were not allowed to travel very far. Matter of fact, you still see this within Israel today. If you get on an elevator, for example, during the Sabbath, every button is already pushed. It stops at everyone, so you will not work by pressing a button, because they consider that to be work. Okay? So you can't travel that far uh, within the, the, you can't travel that far within Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day's journey. That's how much Jewish uh, tradition allowed for you to journey without it be working. And it says that they stopped, they came together, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and it gives a list of all the apostles, the remaining apostles, except Judas Iscariot. And then it says, all these were with one accord, in verse 14, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, his brothers. Now, it's interesting. We often just think it's the apostles, but it's not. Now, we have Mary there, who had become a, she was a believer in what Jesus had done. We have his brothers, if you remember, we're here in our James series, were skeptics. Now, they've been turned to believe in the Savior. So, his brothers are there, and it says the woman, women who accompanied him. Now, the women often get overlooked within this passage, but in Luke chapter 8, Luke and I already talked about them, that said that there were women that were traveling with the apostles that were working, and through their monies, Jesus' ministry was being supported. Uh, you see this in Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. And they were supporting Jesus' ministry. And now they're all together, and they're praying together. They're encouraging one another. They're being together in community. This is something that we need within our alienated online social media society. We need human interaction. People today need a handshake, need a hug, need a smile, need to be together. There is something about online. It's great. It's a wonderful technological tool that we can use for the glory of God, but it cannot replace human interaction. In 2 John and 3 John, John actually writes to me and says, I've written to you enough in paper and ink, but I long to see you face to face, to have an interaction with you, to be together as your body. Let me, let me say this. There are some who are not committed to community. Church is just an add-on to you. And that's not what it's to be, that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as Hebrews says, but we're to meet together more and more as we see the day approaching, knowing that he is coming back, and that we are to encourage one another, to help one another, to live life together, to bear one another's burdens. And I understand we are a busy people, but we give priority to that which we value most. And the reality is, is for many of us, there's no day that's sacred anymore. There's no time that's sacred. Sports, music, we just go along. If we make it to church, it's okay. No. No. These people were committed to being together, committed to community. Are you committed? And I'm not talking about just the church, but it, and I would encourage you to get in a small group. It's one thing to be here on a Sunday morning and shake someone's hand, but it's to be in a group and you see them week after week and you're sharing your life. I heavily encourage you to be in a small group. 
We have them available at different times, different days. We have some in the morning. Uh, we have them in the evening. Please let us know. We need you to get involved and share and push one another on to godliness. Because Satan is at war against our souls and seeks to pull us away. And he, always, he doesn't always do it overtly. He does it sub- subtly. Making your schedule even more busy. Drifting away. Bringing other entertainments. Pulling you away from your pure and undivided. I mean, he wants to make you divided and pull you away from your devotion to Jesus Christ. We need to commit to community. Now, we have an invitation to learn also from Judas' death. Judas' suicide. Judas, if you do not know, was one of the 12 apostles, and he was the one who betrayed Jesus. Luke, who is a very careful historian, curiously omitted the details of Judas' death in his first book, but brings it out in expansion form here. And remember, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and then in sorrow gave the money back to the chief priests and the elders that he had uh, commiserated with after he learned that Jesus was going to be killed. They purchased the field, which was in effect purchased by the money Judas had earned. Luke says that then Judas, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Which seems like a contradiction to, to Matthew's account that Judas went and hanged himself. Some who are skeptics to the faith, they say this is to show that the scripture is not valid, that it gives two different accounts of Judas's death. I believe that the, the two accounts are actually the same account when you harmonize them together. And here's what I mean. The scripture never says where he, hung, he hanged himself. So I'm assuming then that he probably hanged himself from a tree on the side of a cliff. And so when that branch broke, either he'd been hanging there for quite some time or he fell in the rocks below, which caused his body then to tear apart in the description that we see within the text. So I don't believe that they are too different, but they are harmonized accounts. When put together, they see the reality, the authenticity, and the validity of Judas's death. But what can we learn from Judas's death? First of all, this, in verse 16, we read, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. David, according to Peter, foretold what was going to happen to Judas a thousand years before it occurred, which is quite phenomenal, which means this, prophecy that God has made, which is a, a prediction at what is going to happen at the end, will be fulfilled. Not one prophecy of God will be left unfulfilled. So all prophecy will be fulfilled. Even the evil that Judas would do would be fulfilled. That Jesus would be betrayed and it would be by Judas. We have a prophecy concerning that. Secondly, here's another thing we can see, is that proximity to Jesus doesn't mean salvation. Proximity to Jesus doesn't mean salvation. Peter quotes Psalm 69, 25 and verse 20 and says, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. This is, again, King David prophesying a thousand years before it happened. And the word desolate means deserted by others, deprived of the aid and protection of others, especially of friends, acquaintances, kindred, and it means bereft. No one was to dwell with him. This act of betrayal separated him from everyone else, which is a way of saying that he is condemned. And Peter also quotes Psalm 109.8 and says that another should replace him, meaning that he is not a part of this new group that's being formed because of his disqualification. And thirdly, I believe that Judas is condemned because Jesus, in speaking of his betrayer, said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, the Son of Man uh, goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man had he not been born. That's not good hope. 
It's not hope. I've had some people try to redeem Judas. There are heretical musicals out there, like Jesus Christ Superstar, by the way, is a heresy. It's heresy. Judas at the end of the musical is glorified. It's heresy. It is anti-God. I mean, I, I saw it when I was a junior in high school. I, I mean, seeing it, I remember watching going, there was some really cool music, some cool scenes, but I saw that and I just got, ah, everything went bad within me. And he's glorified and everybody's applauding. It's like he's not. Not glorified. It'd been better for him had he not been born. This is a sobering thing. And we have become to treat it just like it's, okay, it's a great entertainment. No! This is a proclamation. It's an understanding of who he is. Another fourth reason that we see that I believe he's condemned is from the book of John and his description of Judas in John 12. In John 12, 5 through 7, we read this. Judas is mad at Mary for taking some costly oil and placing it on Jesus' feet. He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. No other apostle is given such a label. Not just about a thief, but any type of sinner or denier. But he is labeled as a thief and having charge of the money he used to help himself to what was put in it. I don't believe he ever really knew who Jesus was. And this is a man who walked with Jesus, who talked with him for three years, who was a part of his entourage, who was part of the the group that was with him, who saw and witnessed all the miracles, who ate of the bread that Jesus had multiplied, who saw him walk on water, who saw him quiet the storm, and he didn't know Jesus. You can be in ministry and not know who Jesus is. You can be a deacon. You can be a pastor and not know who Jesus is. When I was in New England, okay, by the way, New England is one of the most unchurched parts of the United States. This is a place where some of the great awakenings of revivals in American history occurred. Less than 1% of evangelicals in New England. When I was in seminary in New England, that there was a statistic that was being kept of pastors that were being converted to Christ in the pulpit. Because they were preaching God's word, God spoke to them and brought them to saving faith in Christ. Because there are so many unredeemed people that were teaching God's word and didn't know who Jesus was. They were preaching it and they didn't know him. So don't think that because a person went to seminary or has the title reverend is in heaven just because of that. You can have a proximity to Jesus. You could have grown up in a pastor's home. You could be a deacon. You could have been baptized, take communion, give to the church. None of that means that you really know who Jesus is. So what does that mean for us? It means that we need to probe our own hearts. And, and we have to say, and look at the, the scripture in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. That's the reality to find out, is the person doing what God has said to do in the entirety of their life. Are they seeking to be perfected as they seek to to, as they lay out their struggles and their sins and they're, they're making advancements slowly. It might be incrementally, but they're continuing to see and show the reality that they know Jesus by their walk with him. What, do we, what does that mean for us? Knowing that proximity doesn't mean salvation, then we should probe our own hearts. Or probe our own hearts. This should cause us to look inside ourselves and follow Paul's admonition. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not know... Or you do not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Test yourself. 
What does that mean to test yourself? Ask, am I keeping a short account of sin? Do I get convicted when I feel sin? Am I, willing, am I repenting of it? Am I trying to love God with my entire heart, soul, mind, and strength? These are the questions we have to ask ourselves to see if we truly know who he is. I want to go through these last points rather quickly. We examine the decision for a replacement. What can we learn from the decision that they made to replace Judas with Matthias? Because we read in verse 20 through 26 that they said that let another take his office. Well, first of all, we, we can see this, that there was a specific purpose for the apostles. A specific purpose for the apostles. They had to fill the spot. They needed 12 apostles, and that would complete the new nucleus for the people of God parallel to the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, these 12 would remain the core group of the apostles, and they would serve as the foundation of the church going forward, serving as judges of the 12 tribes of Israel at the end of time. And while a few others would be designated with the term apostle, such as the apostle Paul, Barnabas, and James, it was these specific 12 men who would serve as judges at the end of time, according to Revelation 21.14. And it was through these men that the teaching of Christ would be propagated and validated through their teachings and their miracles. Now, can we have apostles today? Not in the sense of the 12 apostles, and here's why. Because there had to be specific prerequisites that had to have been filled, to be made, to be fulfilled. Notice verse 21 through 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The candidates for apostle had to fulfill some very specific requirements. They had been with Jesus from the baptism of John when Jesus began his ministry until the ascension. And remember, Jesus had 12 apostles, but he had 72 disciples, according to Luke uh, 10.1, which the 12 apostles were selected from. And here, two are offered up who meet that requirement, Matthias and Justice. Some see the office as continuing on based on a few different passages, but here the requirements show that they were for a time and the church was built upon them. And while there is a spiritual gift of an apostle, which is different than the office of an apostle, some who had the spiritual gift were James, as we mentioned before, Barnabas, Andronicus, and Junius, according to Romans sixteen seven, possibly Silas and Timothy, and Apollos. But this latter group had the gift of apostleship and not the apostolic office, conferred upon the twelve and Paul. Those who had the gift of apostle then were those who carried the gospel message with God's authority. The word apostle means one sent as an authoritative delegate. This was true of those who held the office of apostle like Paul and those who had the spiritual gift like Apollos. And though there are men like this today, men who are sent by God to spread the gospel, it is best not to refer to them as apostles because of the confusion this causes since many are not aware of the two different uses of the term apostle. I've gone through all that. Now, what does all that mean? And what do we see here? They cast lots for him, which was like a, uh, a kind of a rolling of the dice, if it were. Uh, there were marked stones that were placed in a pot and shaken out. People say, are we to do this today? Am I to marry so-and-so? No. That's not what it means at all. Jesus doesn't command this. This is, remember, we have within the book of Acts, prescription and description. Simply, there are things that were described as what they did at the time, which was an Old Testament practice of casting lots, and the early church was built off of that foundation. But then there's prescription, things that we are called to follow and do, commanded to do. Not once is this ever mentioned again within the New Testament. Jesus never spoke about it. None of the other uh, books of the Bible mention it. So it's best to say that this was something that was described, not prescribed. Okay? But what they did do 
is they continued to pray. We see that going on time and time again in verse 14. Um, actually, excuse me, skip down a little bit to verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for him, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. We need to pray for guidance. That's what they did. They prayed for guidance. Are we praying for guidance? Now, I don't say that just to fill and say pray. These people were committed and believed. That, remember, they had no other means of interacting with Jesus except through prayer now. This is the only means they had of communicating with him. He was now gone. This is the only way that they could converse with him. And they were praying as a body of believers, committed together to seek God's face. How I long for our church to do this. How I long for our people to come together to pray. I believe that God is working here, but I also believe that he can and will do so much more if his people turn to him in prayer and seek his face. God works in proportion to his people praying. The great pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he was an amazing pastor, was once asked what the secret of his spiritual power was. His response, my people pray for me. Let me ask you a question. Do you pray for your leaders? If you haven't been uh, around very long, then you probably don't know it. Uh, it doesn't make sense what I'm about to say. But those who have been around, this has been a really rough summer for Village Bible Church. This has been hard. We saw one of our pastors be dismissed, and we saw one of our former pastors take his own life. The spiritual burden is great. The pressures and attacks are very real. Are you praying for your pastors? Are you praying for your leaders? Are you praying for one another? Are we doing that? It's not just going through the motions, having great music, great, I mean, all these things are good that we have, but without God's people praying, what are we doing? If we're not doing the hard things, if we're not doing the old things, the ancient things, the things that haven't changed, that God has laid forth within his word, what are we doing? We need to be praying. And that's not just the only thing. We need to be loving our neighbors and doing all the things that the scripture talks about. But we need to make prayer a priority, not just talk about it, but do it. Because if we cease to pray, then we might, might as well write the word Ichabod across our church. You know what the word Ichabod means? It's from an Old Testament uh, passage after uh, two of the priests within Israel's history had, had really sinned against God and finally they were killed. And one of the remaining priests' wife was giving birth. And in, uh, she was lamenting the loss of the Ark of the Covenant, which had been captured in battle. Her, her, her husband and her brother-in-law were killed. She's dying in labor. And she decides to name this child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. If we're not willing to pray and seek God's face, we might as well put Ichabod in the front of the church to say God's glory has departed. We're just here going through the motions. We have to be able to do the hard things. They're easy to talk about, but they're hard to do. And real heart change doesn't occur until God's people pray. And that brings God to bear and bring people into an encounter with an almighty God. I think the reason that many of us don't pray is we're too comfortable as things are. We don't see a need to it. That's a shame. We need to pray, pray, and pray. Prayed for one another. They prayed and God selected Matthias who was to occupy the office of the 12th apostle forever. What can we learn from these different scenes from Acts 1? We can see that we have a mission to make his name known through the power of his spirit, to be together as a community, to look to his second coming, to probe our hearts and pray and march forward, ready to break down the gates of hell.